Targeting Radio with our good friend, Gerald Ashley. Gerald Ashley? Gerald Ashley. Oh my God, am I having a stroke? Gerald, how are you? What's happening? Where are we finding you today? Um, I'm fine, and I still remember my name, so don't worry if you can't. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Do you I'm, know who you are? Do I know who I am? I don't know. Well, exactly. Does it matter even? Um, yeah, no, I'm fine. This is the last boring update on my surgery. I'm all cleared by the surgeon, and I'm... Um, I'm ready to take up ballroom dancing at some stage, but I but I probably won't. I love it. I love it. No, no, I probably won't. But no, so I'm I'm um, I'm in good shape, and uh, we we've been a little bit intermittent into the in the summer and into the autumn, but now we're back sort of full throttle, and um, we need a five hour show because there's so much going on, isn't there? Five hour show? What are you uh, channeling Castro? I mean, <laughs> I don't do anything for five hours. <laughs> Well, there's so many yeah. topics, and we, I, you know, as usual, I'll let you kick off the topics. But we've got a we've got a huge range of things on the go at the moment. Well, let's see. Yeah, maybe we'll. Uh, I'm not sure we'll have five hours, but maybe we'll eclipse an hour today. So let's see how we do. First off, inflation, your favorite topic. Yeah. Is this, is this one of your favorite topics? Inflation, not the act of it, but just the talk of it. Well, I mean, I, I you know, you know the old joke. You asked three economists and you get four opinions and of course we're getting um we're getting lots of different um uh, opinions about inflation i i personally think that we're making a mistake if we think it's like the 1970s a lot of people are sort of turning around and saying you know there'd been various shocks in the global economy and um inflation has got embedded because governments have printed money like water and that it will uh, it will persist for very many years. I mean, you could say in the seventies it persisted right in, into the nineteen eighties. So you're saying if you're saying we shouldn't think it's the seventies in the sense like oh we've been there done that we know how to handle it. Uh, no, I think it's just a slight a slightly different beast. I don't think it's going to have the longevity of ten years. We might uh, still be talking about it in a year's time or eighteen months, but that might be pretty much it. Um, do you think it's getting too much attention, maybe, currently? Mm, yeah, but of course it's front and center because it's hitting people's wages and all the rest of it. Um, there, are, there, are lots, oh, there are lots of spillovers coming here. And um, maybe the first thing to say is that this might actually be a natural, a natural occurrence after letting the brakes off from the global lockdown, that we suddenly let the brakes off everything. And whilst... We were locked down. Governments were printing money to try and keep everything afloat and save businesses and everything. Right. And that, that money kind of went to all sorts of crazy things, you know, NFT markets where in the art market people were paying literally millions of dollars for something that I all I could see was a was a water-printed um, uh, copy of something. I mean, it was completely <laughs> mad. Completely mad. So we've had all of that. And now, of course, it's hit, it's hit mainstream life. Um, but I, I do wonder if it's a one-off shock, because if you look at the commodity markets, with the possible exception of oil, though oil has come off quite a lot as well, but the commodity markets are definitely down. Um, and shipping rates, you know, we talked about the, the global supply chains and shipping costs were through the roof. They're right back where they started from. So it's been a gigantic inverted letter V. So that one-off price shock might work its way out of the system relatively quickly. But there's a lot of pain between now and getting to that point, 
think. Yeah, you're spot on about the shipping rates. I, I, I'll have to dig out this stat, but I think they're down maybe 90% from where they were. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, like, yeah. it's just shocking how it's just basically, you're right, it's done like a 360 or 180 back to where it started. Um, inflation is interesting in, this, in two things. It matters to you if you're buying stuff. So I saw like the Ford F-150 Lightning, the Ford uh, EV pickup. Yeah. They've increased it by 30%. And that all has to do with, you know, supply chain problems, sure. chips supposedly, and commodities. Food, as you mentioned, there's definitely been inflation in that space. But the energy, kind of petrol, gasoline here in the States is back to where it was. Um, and also, you know, it's a campaign season here in the U.S. And the Republicans, their main objective was to tar and feather the Democrats with the inflation yeah. tag. And I sometimes think that when a lot of people start talking about stuff, it becomes like conventional wisdom and yeah, it seems to be a there, bigger problem than maybe it really is. There is I, I think you're right, but there is a risk in all of this, which is the timing of uh, central bank actions for whatever reason has been woeful. Um, they've been very slow to raise rates. It's always very easy to look back and say what you would have done if you were running things, but they were certainly, the Fed, the ECB, uh, Bank of England, all very slow to raise interest rates. In fact, the Fed have been better than certainly the ECB or the Bank of England. Yeah. Now, I fear that the central banks will keep raising rates at the very point when they should stop raising them. And so that they, they would have been too slow on the way in and they'll be too slow on the way out. And so I think there's a risk that central banks tighten too often at the very point all the things we're talking about start to slow down. And there are some pinch points already. Um, we're not seeing it in unemployment data yet because unemployment lags everything else. But one that catches my eye, and it's in your part of the world, is the U.S. domestic uh, residential property market, the mortgage market, is, right. taking, is taking a hit. And we're about to take a hit in the U.K. as well. And Yeah, I think we're at a... Um is it, is it a six-year high? Maybe it's a six-year high, mm. uh, but it's over 7%, um, which seems quite alarming when you could borrow money just a year ago, probably for half that price, if not less. Yeah. Um, the impact on that I don't, is definitely getting a lot of attention. It's, I think in the U.S., there's definitely a shortage of houses, right? Yeah. So are people still going to buy? Uh, probably, but are they going to move or move up? You know, I think that may mm. be what's interesting. And um, once again, there's certain neighborhoods that are always going to be kind of desirable. And yeah, yeah. If you want to get into that neighborhood. Are you going to sweat one or two inflation points? I don't know. But if it's a starter home or, like I said, downsizing or moving to a different property, I don't know. Maybe there will be a stall. Real estate is wildly important in the U.S. There's no doubt about it in terms of velocity yeah. of money and just consumer well-being or just the, you know, the perception that my life is going well because I'm moving property. Yeah, no, I think it's the same in the UK. You know, we don't have that continental culture of renting. You know, um, uh, any friends of ours in Germany would think we're mad. Why do you buy a property? You just always <laughs> rent one. And but they have a they have a kind of very different sort of um, uh, almost fixed rental market system. So it's it's a, it's not you know not a free market, and and so people can. It, can, can rent long-term and not be exposed. Now, all, all of this means is that, um, you know, uh, inflation prices are going up, people are price sensitive. Um, if interest rates keep going up or stay up, 
I think there's going to be trouble in two areas. There's going to be trouble in 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 the mortgage market or in, in people buying for property and also in discretionary spending. Because some people say, well, okay, I've got to pay the mortgage, so I'm not I'm not taking that second holiday. You know, we're not having the anniversary weekend away uh, at a flash hotel in Scotland or France or wherever. So I think a lot of discretion, you know, spending at the margin might really suffer. And in the very sector that has been absolutely crucified uh, by the lockdown. So I think um, we don't give investment advice, but if you look at if you look at you know things like the hospitality sector and um, you know hotels and lodging and all the rest of it, you've got to, and airlines, you've got to be very nervous of, of the, all those sectors. And so trouble ahead there, I think. And I think uh, the auto industry, you know, I mean, if, if Ford can suddenly jack up the price of an F-150 EV truck by 30%, plus you've got to borrow more money, you know, it's going to cost you more money to borrow to pay off this truck. Um, are you going to see less people buying cars? I think you're spot on. Discretionary income or decisions, restaurants, entertainment, spending a few hundred extra bucks on a car. Yeah. I think there's going to be some challenges there in the, in the new year. There's a behavioral thing here. There's a sort of, human behavioral thing i don't think people not normal people go around calculating interest rates <laughs> at the top of their heads and wondering about oh my god you know fed funds have gone up 50 basis points they have a they have a metric in their mind is what is the monthly payment right if their monthly payment is 300 bucks for the car and i don't know a thousand bucks on the mortgage fair enough if suddenly the car is 600 and the mortgage is 1500 something's got to give and so I think it's difficult to always know where these you know, price points are, but that's where the discretionary change in spending will come. When people say, wow, look at the monthly payments. Now, I love the uh, analysis of behavior. I mean, I think it's just such a telling data point. It's, you know, yeah. are people planning trips? Are they upgrading their washer and dryer? I mean, stuff you take, you know, you don't think about, but you're like, I've got a, you know, this washing machine's great. Do I need another one? You know, I don't know. Cause I need to, I'm spending, you know, three, 400 more bucks just to live and drive. Um, those are kind of interesting numbers that aren't sexy, but I think behavior is really where we're going to learn what's happening in the economy. And it, it's, it's a big challenge for manufacturers and for service providers, because the iron rule is don't be caught in the middle. Funnily enough, the very high end products will still sell well. So, 100%, if you, yeah. so if you get the really high branded fridge, washing machine, Bentley car, whatever, yeah. they will always sell. And the very, very bottom end, where it's pilot high, sell it cheap, get it out the door, on generic goods will sell. Anybody stuck in the middle will be absolutely shellacked. And that's exactly what's happened before in inflationary times. So you don't want to be a middle-of-the-road producer or service provider where you're somewhere in the middle in terms of pricing, because the only way you're going to survive is probably to go down market, and there'll be plenty of people who will be there before you. So this is all very cheerful, but th th these are some of the, some of the things that, that, that could happen. There's a great quote from, uh, I'm gonna, I think it's Jim Hightower um, down there in Texas, and he used to say that there's only two things in the middle of the road, Dead armadillos and bad decisions. <laughs> oh, I really like that. I like that. That's very good indeed. <laughs> um, 
So we are, we are, we are bearish or um, pessimistic well, inflation. I think it depends. Yeah, it depends where you are on the economic ladder. Um, yeah, I think looking at hospitality is going to, to me, is an interesting thing. And I love the, yeah, the white goods, what people are buying. I, I do think, like, if you want a house in the states, I don't know. I think you press on. I think you then, then you don't take the trip. You know, then you don't go to the yeah. meal and. Um, yeah. But I don't know. If you want an F-150, it seems like you're pretty committed to getting an F-150, even if it's going to cost you a few hundred more extra bucks a month. Yeah, it's the elasticity of the demand, isn't it? And I think um, there are some goods that people will just pay bonkers prices for. The market that I have absolutely no understanding of at all, well, you'll be relieved to hear it, really, is the ladies' handbag market. I mean, uh, where people are paying 25000 <laughs> bucks. For a handbag, I mean, if you need to, uh, you should be. Thought, you know, I'm in the wrong career. I should have gone into handbag. Uh, no, we should all work for Hermes, man. I mean, yeah, yeah. the Birkin. Um, so there's know, you should meet my wife. I'm happy to introduce you to my wife and some of her friends. I think they can explain <laughs> to you the the rationale behind handbags. What yeah. an industry! Yeah, there's always so there's always a high end, and uh, and that will always survive. But a lot of other businesses will get driven down to being commoditized. And that is not not the way to be successful in business normally. There's actually an interesting stat I read this week about um, how Gen Z uh, is actually drinking less alcohol. And one of the reasons was health. But one of the bigger reasons was just the cost, you know. Right. Um, they're doing the calculation, the delta, you know, the pleasure is great. But the extra cost, it's not, you know, like they're saying it's not worth the extra money. Which is pretty well, I, I think they're missing a trick here. They're not drinking enough because once you drink, <laughs> once you drunk a large amount you've forgotten what the cost was anyhow high low exactly either exactly. but once again you never want to be in the middle of the road exactly the middle is a hell of a place to be you've got to avoid it well let's um speaking of uh, the middle of the road in texas how about energy um quite an interesting headlines coming out of the uk about the dire winter there's a run i guess on electric blankets uh, our good friend Emmanuel Macron is wearing a turtleneck in France to uh, encourage the French. He um, to, he can always be relied upon to dress for the occasion. You will remember about six weeks ago he was in a sort of mock battle dress whilst talking to uh, Zelensky in Ukraine on the phone from the elite. Macron could do no wrong for me, man. I yeah, no, he's, well, uh, whatever he's wearing, we should, you know, he's there's, maybe is, there's a new measurement there, a new index. The, the Macron. Is, Fashion index. This is the big ideological divide in this podcast. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think there's less to him than meets the eye. But there we By are. By the way, um, well, I mean, <laughs> that could be that could be true. But he's still, you know, a great president. Anyways, I just spot. I just learned this is an aside that Paris is almost a hundred, hundred twenty, maybe one hundred ten miles closer to London than Edinburgh. Well, yeah, and your and your and your point. <laughs> well, I just I was like, no wonder Scotland has got so many problems. Anyways, well, I mean, you know, there's no love. I think there, but also I was also geographically and economically, I was thinking, you know, between Paris, London, Amsterdam. I mean, that is like an economic powerhouse. I mean, yeah, it's um, been a, it's been a triangle of commerce really since the Middle Ages, and in fact, yeah, finesse it slightly and say before Amsterdam it was Antwerp, but basically. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, there's a persistence in these economic cluster areas. And, um, 
you know, you see you, you see that in other parts of the world as well. But it, it's it's very very much the case in um, uh, in Europe. But of course, the manufacturing clusters are slightly differently. They're, they're and it's hard for you to escape the draw of Paris. That's that's the the logical conclusion. Well, I suppose if you can't afford to be in London, you have to go to Paris. <laughs> Anyways, let's talk about energy. Um, I don't know. A lot more hype. Uh, you know, OPEC this week, OPEC Plus decided to drop 2 million barrels a day. I, I dig a stat out. The world produces like 90 million barrels a day. So we're dropping two off. Um, a lot of angst out of the White House, obviously, especially coming up in an election. I don't know. Is, this, is energy still a big problem? Well, we keep using it. We keep burning it. We're burning more coal than we ever have. Um, in the UK, that made a big thing of saying we're not using coal anymore last year. We're back to using it about 2 or 3% of the time for electricity generation. Um, I, as ever, I think it'd be interesting to hear your view on this because away from just the market price of oil, what's really going on in the calculations here? Because the you know, OPEC and Saudis and, and the sort of big oil producers, they can kind of turn the tap on and off at will. And for some reason, they've decided that they want to jack the price up a bit. Um, how far? Who knows? Do we go back to $100 a barrel? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I was surprised by I mean, it's the policy. Maybe it's the yeah, policy it's, rather than the market is the thing. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think the headlines, like just kind of sticking it to Biden, I mean, even the New York Times was quite critical of, uh, you know, the fist bump diplomacy. Saudi is not a very uh, popular country here in the no. U.S. for a number of reasons, especially with the media elite. Um, but is two million barrels a big number? I, I have no. I don't. Know. I, I was just. Well, it's at the margin, isn't it? It's like all yeah. these things. You you only need to do a, a bit at the margin to sort of tip tip the the scales. The other one, which of course. Again, I think we talked about maybe in our very first podcast back in January or February time was the, the LNG market, the liquid natural gas market, and how um, we half guessed that Mr. Putin might, um, you know, turn off the gas taps. And who is going to be the big winner in this actually is, is uh, the United States, because you're, uh, along with um, the Middle East, because, you know, the U.S. have got a lot of LNG to, to export. And I see the German president has been complaining that he feels that American producers of LNG have been sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of guilty of, um, of of scamming on or scalping, isn't it? Scalping on prices. But the the, the fact of the matter is, there are big imbalances in in individual economies uh, as to where they're going to get their energy from. And, uh, well, as a proud American, I can say that all my fellow citizens are strictly capitalist and they have they believe fully in the free market. Um, I, what's interesting is like, yeah, we're just talking about the margins. We're talking about like short term stuff. But I think we both would agree. Nobody's talking about the big issue. Why are we building nuclear plants? Like, why are we yeah. worried about these like short term fixes? There's general consensus on how we can create energy with low carbon and it's nuclear. Why are we building these plants? Yeah, I'm, it, it beggars belief as far as I'm concerned. And um, Finland, after a large number of delays and years behind, have now got their major nuclear power plant up and running, I think it was two or three weeks ago. And it, it's already a significant part of the calculation for Europe, the European grid of 
of, uh, uh, for electricity. Um, the, the, the Germans, I, I just don't understand the mindset at all about Germany and, and nuclear power. Um, and Britain, I'm slightly worried that there's a, yet again, we're going to get a lot of showboating by politicians. That's a surprise. Um, there was Boris, Boris, remember him? Boris talked a lot about um, small modular reactors, which would be a really good idea. And, uh, you know, we, we put modular reactors into, into aircraft carriers and submarines. Why the hell can't we have localised uh, localized nuclear plants? That, to me, nobody's talking much about it because now the geniuses in the Ministry of Energy have dreamt up some wacko plan that we're going to have nuclear fusion in 2040. Um, no, we won't. No, we won't. <laughs> they don't know how to do it. They keep, you know, nuclear fusion has been around since I was in short trousers, and it's always 20 years away. Well, a slight bit of math suggests now it's only 18 years away. Um, and I think, I don't know why it is that policymakers, lawmakers, etc., cannot focus on doable long-term projects. This running around in high-vis jackets for photo opportunities, something I know you think is important to have the right photo opportunity. <laughs> but these, they don't lead anywhere. You know, we, as you say, we actually need proper, secure power sources. And a lot of the Western world doesn't have it. And just, yeah, say, listen, this is what we're doing. These are three things we're focused on. One of them is nuclear power. Yeah. We get these things up and running. Yeah, it's pretty wild to watch this. Okay, speaking of politicians without conviction or making U-turns, can we talk about our friend, Team Trust? Right, right. well, here we go. Um, can I just say, I thought when she got the job, there would be, there was a high probably, I was like, what is her first vote of no confidence? 2022, 2023, 2024? Oh my God, could you ask for a more disastrous entry I think, I, think you, I think you've got a little overexcitable and you're already, you know, penciling in the return of King Boris, which, um, as I've explained before, is not going to happen. But, um, boy, it's been an interesting two or three weeks. Uh, funnily enough, in terms of Mrs. Truss, I quite like the message, but the messenger has, has been awful. And the way it's been presented has been awful. And the most extraordinary thing is they only... Um, they only essentially presented one half of what's going to happen. And they, they actually did a Boris, in my opinion, in that they, they announced all the things that would keep people happy and would be crowd pleasers like ta tax cuts, except they fell over the ball on the, the political issue of, of the high rate. Um, and they made no mention at all of spending cuts or changes in um, revenue projections and of course the markets unsurprisingly had a fit and um, you know that's where we are yeah I think you're spot on about the cons I, I what struck me is the speech she gave to the conservative party conference was to me the speech she should have gave when she took over number 10 I mean I think there was a general surprise of maybe her economic policies which I think caught the market off guard yeah. um, there's no doubt that the UK needs to find out some kind of growth pattern, right? So yeah. I think her instincts around that are spot on, and it should be a combination of things, including tax cuts. 
but it was never messaged. It, it was never communicated. And I, I think it's a classic example, too, of politicians when they win an election, they think the job is done. Yeah. But in fact, after you win the election, your job is just your campaigning is only just beginning. In fact, you need to campaign more. And uh, it was striking to me when uh, after the Queen's funeral, you know, it was the UN General Assembly and uh, Trust was in New York. And there's and I'm very visual. And I think I do think it's important. She met with Macron and we could dig at the photo. It looked like uh, a regional sales office. I mean, there was no grandeur. There was no, it was, you know. And then I think she did an interview with Sky News in this kind of dingy, dark you know, unglamorous yeah. hotel room. And I'm just like, you're the prime minister of one of the most important countries in the world, you know, and I think these kind of things add up and um, yeah, no, I agree. it's all part mm-hmm. of the messaging. I agree. And I think we, there's no way of getting away from the fact she is a titanically awful public speaker. I mean, she is, she is beyond wooden. I mean, I think I would rather listen to somebody reading out the Manchester phone directory I mean, yeah, but even bad, you know, I think there's a way to get around that. You can just say, listen, I'm not the greatest order, but here's what I believe. These are three things we're going to work on. Let's get to work. And I think people well, would respond I, to that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm slightly surprised you haven't packed your bags and you're off to 10 Downing Street to kind of, you know, iron out some of this stuff because I thought you'd be, I'm ready. You'd be the man to do it. And it's such a cheap time to come with the exchange. <laughs> I know. Make sure you get paid in dollars and not in sterling. I love it. Um, But I I do think it, you know, it's worthy debate. I think there's lessons to be learned here from, it's almost like a product launch kind of situation. I mean, I think there's business leaders that can see what team trust did where they failed. And it's just a good reminder. I mean, you got to communicate. It sounds crazy, but you got to be always communicating, you know, and keep it simple. These are three things we're focused on and make it happen. Yeah, we're back to your mantra that, you know, you have to stick to the possible, not necessarily, you know, it's not aspirational. And yeah. some of the things were a bit aspirational. Uh, and one or two of the, the things were were actually are never going to be understood by the general public. Actually, the general public, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit rude about them, but they will not understand that cutting the higher rate of tax is quite likely to generate higher levels of tax revenue. Um, this, this is just completely lost on people. Then they well, I agree. To- Going back to our initial uh, conversation, if discretionary income impacts markets, that is, if people have more money or less money to buy trips, cars, yeah. why wouldn't changing the tax rate work? And I think, once again, this idea of trickle down, you know, like you, if you let other people define the narrative, you lose, you know? Yeah, and that's yeah, why I mean, the communication aspect of it is yeah. so important. Yeah, I, I think it's right. And uh, the irony of all of this is she, like it or hate it, she represents a radical change, but that's got lost. It's just, yeah. it, it's, compl- and I think, I, I, you know, this is your field and not mine. I think, is it terminal in the sense, I think she could well be prime minister the next general election, but I find, I struggle to see the Tories um, winning, to be honest, and that's astonishing given the size of the majority. I mean, it's quite astonishing the idea that the Labour Party could be the next administration. I mean, we may end up in some dreadful muddle of minority governments and all the rest of it again, because Labour, you know, it's such a mountain to climb. They can't quite make that final push to the summit. 
and yeah. in the absolute majority. Then, of course, all sorts of other fun and games start. Well, you know, they've been in power for 12 years. I think this is the, uh, this is the fifth prime minister, right, during that period. Um, I don't know. It's tough to keep things going. I, there's a bit of inertia. You know, there's not a lot of agreement. It could be just a natural cyclical thing, you're, but you're well, spot on. The majority is massive. And there's polling numbers saying that labor is up by 30 points, which is absolutely, I mean, yeah, it's like know. almost mathematically impossible, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it's a trading market, you'd sell into that, I think. But I think um, maybe there's a more nuanced view and you say, well, there's, a, you know, the Tories have been for, in for, uh, in for what, it, what we're talking about, 12 years. But in a way, some of those governments have been very, very different. I mean, you, it's hard to believe that Mrs. May's cabinet um, is even on speaking terms with some yeah. uh, of Mrs. Truss's cabinet. I mean, they are from completely different planets. And so you might take a, you may take a view, uh, for a historical view, is that the Tory party, this fantastic winning machine, is it going to break? Because there are a lot of those two wings are very far apart. Now we would have said that two years ago about Labour, and the moderates have won. But at the moment, I the Tory Party looks like two parties to me. To be honest, oh, it's a hundred percent, if not three. I mean, I think yeah. uh, even here in the states, you know, we have four parties operating in the two-party system, right? Right. Um, I think the parliamentary system obviously lends itself to having more independent, multiple parties. What's interesting to me, getting back almost to Moscow, right? I mean, Truss's biggest opponents are in the room. You know, the, yeah. like, the, the, the phone call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a lesson to, you can do a lot of stuff externally, but if you haven't got your internal team on the same page, it's a real challenge. She doesn't strike me as a backroom deal maker. She's not an LBJ or one of these guys who can talk to people. Well, nobody's an LBJ. Well, LBJ was an alien, man. He's quite an extraordinary character. <laughs> Again, love him or hate him. Do you know um, the story? I mean, do you know the Jack Valenti story where you know Jack Valenti was shorter? And I think, yeah. you know, do you know the story? So that no, no. Lyndon Johnson had a pool, right? And Johnson's over six feet. <laughs> Valenti's, you know, five and Johnson just kept going deeper and deeper into the deep end, right? <laughs> to the point where Valenti had to like tread water to maintain the conversation. It was, there was all these psychological games and the chairs apparently in the Oval, in the cabinet room were cut lower for the, for the cabinet. You know? we're, getting, Anyways. We're, getting, we're getting close to Mr. Putin's long table here, <laughs> which we don't exactly. see at the moment. We don't see that anymore. Bring back, maybe he needs to bring back the long tail. Yeah. Um, all right, so wrapping up on trust, I mean, what do we we think she survives? She goes to the general election, if you had to make a prediction today? Yeah, if I, um, I doubt that she would get a majority. I think we may have a mess in 2024. But you but think, think she's the top of the ticket? She leads the Conservative Party into the general election? I think election. so, because um, despite your adoration of Boris, um, I don't think there's a route, I don't think there's a route back for him. Um, because if we had a presidential system, yeah. he'd be absolutely in the number one driving slot. But we don't. I mean, what about Keir Stammer? Is he going to be leading the Labour Party? Probably, um, but you know, they're not a very inspiring crew. I mean, it's an, you know, here's another sort of quiz question: Can you name three people from the uh, from the Labour front bench? I mean, you know, it's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? The um, Labour front bench. That's yeah. A, yeah I've, uh, 
Yeah, you've got 40 to choose from, and you're struggling on three. In fact, I'm struggling a bit now. Where's Jerry Cor- was Jeremy Cormier around? Well, he's not even in the party. <laughs> Uh, but so all of this is it's going to be noisy and messy and as we know markets don't like that and to try and um, stabilize things i know people focus a lot on the on the exchange rate which i think is pretty much irrelevant um there's a lot of that it's really to do with the dollar but the cost of borrowing is important and if you know britain is a big borrower in capital markets and we in the famous phrase, are reliant on the kindness of strangers in buying our bonds. And if the strangers get less kind, then you've got real trouble. I think, too, she's suffering from, you know, I was looking for, like, inflection points, off-ramps, how can she change the story, the narrative? Um, I don't know. Maybe she's got to wait till the coronation of King Charles III in June, but that seems like a long time to be treading water. Let's go back to Moscow. Okay. Psyops. Let's talk about the psychology, the psyops that is happening here in the U.S. last night. Joe Biden in a fundraiser, which I think was hosted by James Murdoch, which is pretty interesting, in New York, told these highfalutin, wealthy Democratic donors that Putin should be taken seriously and that Armageddon is around the corner. Unbelievable. Um, We have Putin. Is he the new rocket man? Oh right. Well, I see the Rocket Man's been very active again. He's very busy. He's he's disappointed us this year because he's normally very active in August. And he's been quite hard. busy these last few weeks. Even one night, sending two rockets over Japan. Uh, I know we we slightly uh, demean him, but he is a serious trouble. Though I've always worked on the basis that presidency in China would always tap him on the shoulder if things got really serious. But back- what I love is the, uh, the Rocket Man's rockets always seem to go towards Japan, never towards China. It's quite interesting. Funny that. Funny that. It may be, <laughs> it may be the prevailing wind. Who knows? Probably, um, yeah. But I'm not, a sci- I'm not a scientist, so maybe you're right. <laughs> I don't think the wind knows what it should do with it. But the, um, you know, the serious point about what's going on in, in, in Russia and this war with Ukraine is it. I think it's very interesting. And I, I was thinking the other day, just imagine we were reporting on the First World War. We all have a we have a, a mental image of the First World War where both sides are stuck in trenches and never moved. That's not strictly true. The front lines move 30, 40 miles this way, then that way. And in fact, the Germans had a very major advance in 1918 and then they exhausted themselves and it was a counterpunch from the Allies that did for them. Hmm. They, they overextended themselves. So... In the same way, we've got this idea now that Ukraine, you know, everybody thought it was going to be a blitzkrieg, quick war all over in a fortnight. That didn't happen. And it looks like trench warfare. I would caution against people thinking because the Ukrainians have advanced X number of miles that they are, quote, winning. They clearly have stalled what is a very rickety and inefficient Russian uh, uh, military machine. Um, but I, I, I would, I would hesitate to say that the Russians are anywhere near defeated. I mean, there are no Ukraine invent, uh, advances into Crimea. Now, what you may find is what happens in situations like this. Um, Putin's done the first thing; he starts taking personal control. The second one is you fire all the generals you don't like. Well, I think quite a few are probably missing from the TV screens and have been. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shuffled off to Datchers somewhere in the middle of nowhere, if they're lucky. Um, and then the third thing is 
you say, you know, you, you do this sort of thing, or you draw a line in the sand and say, right, this must go no further. And I suppose this is where Joe Biden's idea comes in. Uh, you know, we push, uh, we, if we corner Putin, he'll do something reckless and he'll fire, you know, battlefield nuclear weapons. Um, my personal view is, and I, you know, I have no idea, but my personal view is that that won't happen, but that he may well use chemical weapons. And then I think NATO has got a real problem because NATO and, and really the United States under, under Obama didn't react. Obama said there was going to be a red line on chemical weapons in Syria. Yeah. It happened, and then there was no reaction. Now, I think if there was a nuclear attack, I think there would be a hell of a reaction. But if it's a chemical one, it's kind of a, one of those sly chess moves that pushes your opponent and it's, you know, will they really react? I mean, what is the American reaction to, you know, chemical warfare in, in, in Eastern Ukraine? No, it's spot on. And um, what's proportional? I mean, do you yeah. respond with conventional weapons to destroy the delivery system? Um, you know, it's interesting also today, well, Biden is talking about Armageddon. Um, the Washington Post has a story that U.S. intelligence gathered intel that Putin was talked back at at one of his recent meetings. That is one of his inner circles talked back to him. Oh, right. Somehow this, this intel got into the president's daily brief, right? And somehow it got to the Washington Post. I'm just saying it's pretty bizarre how this <laughs> stuff happens. The, the psyops of this war is being fought on so many different levels and so many different platforms. Um, there is this narrative that he's crazy, he's out of control. We should also say, by the way, it's Putin's birthday today. He turns he's, 70. Yeah, he's 70 today, isn't he? Um, I don't know if you sent him anything. Um, but uh, the messaging is, it's all over the place and it seems very intentional. Um, right, this victory, uh, where are these great liberation? Are, they, you know, are we seeing great footage from the battlefield? I don't know, it's, it, this seems like the most bizarre war and maybe because so much of my vision of war has been warped culturally just by watching so many world war ii videos yeah. you know um i think you're spot on this is more akin to old school uh world war one you know maybe even 19th century warfare yeah it it, it 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 feels messy and it's clearly not short now because it's what since the middle of february so what are we now eight months into this you get the feeling this could still be going on in one, two, three years' time. Um, the other, the other. Well, it's been going on. What's interesting is like it's been going on since 2014. I mean, the Crimea invasion oh, yeah, was absolutely. 2014. Yeah. So, like, you know, some uh, generals in Ukraine will say, "Well, no, this is almost this is almost going on a decade." Yeah, that that that's a good point. And then for people who like conspiracies and dramas, which I know you always love, um, Mark. <laughs> Um, I think I've mentioned before, we both mentioned before, in many ways that Putin is a bit like Julius Caesar. He's all-powerful in his world, um, but he is terrified of the 30 people who surround him, which may be this point about whether or not somebody genuinely is pushing back against him. Yeah, um, like again, why? You know, Go we ought to caution on this because you think, great, we've got rid of him, but it's not going to be taken over by a nice, easygoing, Western, liberal, democratic-type leader. We could well get another equally, if not worse, 
nasty piece of work. So there's there's no easy. Yeah, no, come on. We're gonna have a we're gonna have an LSE London School of Economics educated you know USC University of South Carolina you know Carolina graduate. Now here's one for you. There's a hint in the name. Isn't this Boris's big opportunity? Yeah, I mean he could. Oh, there we go. Stage. There you go. Exactly. That would be so. Now you're, I mean, like, what does happen next? And let me ask, if any kind of serious weapon is detonated, mm. uh, it blows up on, it'll be on Twitter within seconds. Yeah. Right. Um, what happens? Does the West, does NATO respond within seconds? I think is it 24 hours? Is it a week? No, is there I, a UN Security Council meeting? Like, what happens? I agree. If you know, you're sitting in the hot seat as President of the United States, particularly if it's a chemical weapons. Uh, uh, attack, I think it's quite difficult to know what the correct level of response is. If it's an, a, a ridiculously, you know, over-the-top attack, I don't know, say on one of the Balkan states, uh, not the Balkan states, the Baltic states, or, or you know, a serious tactical uh, nuclear weapon inside Ukraine, funnily enough, it's kind of easier. because it, Yeah, no, I think you agree, and it's a chemical weapon is quite insidious because it would be easier to execute. Whereas my understanding of a nuclear weapon on the Russian side, there would, there would be days of prep. You just, you know, the, the weapons they're talking about um, would require some kind of movement, putting material into place, which ideally could be tracked on spy satellites. Whereas a chemical weapon, it seems to me, you could yeah. deliver that in a multiple different ways. There's another tactic, which I think we started to see this week, is that uh, with this pushback, by Ukrainian troops making advances. Uh, the Russians have gone to targeting um, cities with missiles. And one of the, not hidden, but stories that maybe isn't talked so much about is there's been quite a return of Ukrainians to the Ukraine from the initial days of the war. Now, if those people, you know, are sitting in large cities or major towns start being bombed by missiles, we will have another refugee crisis. And so if there isn't enough trouble in Western Europe already with energy and the coming winter, um, if you were to add on a, um, a, a refugee crisis to that, um, you really have had problems. And to be deeply cynical and unpleasant, if one was Putin, that may be quite a smart lever to pull. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's obviously dreadful, but, you know, from, from that perspective. Well, and that's, you know, that's his modus operandi, right? Being yeah. dreadful and acting horribly. But I think what's interesting, my understanding too, Ukraine has been very key to get people back into the cities, opening restaurants, opening shops, yeah. return to life, um, you know, the velocity of money, getting that economy going, which is obviously in a dreadful state. Um, so attacking eight cities, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the economic engine of Ukraine, I don't know, could be pretty interesting. And I think maybe Putin, you know, can be touting these crazy weapons, but yeah, he's like, okay, I didn't use a nuclear weapon, but I'm using more conventional weapons yeah. to create chaos. And it just drags this thing out even longer. Either way, it's not a great situation. It's amazing that it's his birthday today. Um, he's, my, I just think as long as he's around, he's a, it's just a problem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's incredibly serious. We make light of some points about it. I mean, it is very, very serious. And as I say, the, the correct level of response by the West to anything that happens is... Is critical actually. I mean, I'm and of course, what our friends in Beijing do, which we should talk just in passing, we should let our viewers know. So I know you're excited about it. the 20th National Congress starts on Sunday, and on the 16th of October, 
she is supposed to take over the paramount leadership this third term. But I don't know. There'll be a lot of focus on Beijing in the next few weeks. It got to think that Beijing does not want a nuclear detonation. I think, yeah, as I, she gets his third term. I think, I think, I think that that must be right. Though they must also be very pleased with the situation that Russia is no longer uh, a top table player. Really, I mean, I, yeah, know, we can't. I mean, you know, is it a vassal state? It's certainly pretty close. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's um, uh, you know, it's got lots of internal divisions within it, and uh, they've always been held together like a large, you know, most very large countries um, by uh, autocracy. So I think Russia just demonstrates it's quite fragile, it's quite brittle, and it, you know, it might snap in all sorts of ways. So there we are. That's a nice, cheerful roundup of going around the world, isn't Fantastic. it? Fantastic. We'll make you a provincial governor of, uh, you know. Yeah, thank you. Some I've far never... eastern province. Yeah, yeah. Never to be heard of ever again. You'll be on the Pacific Ocean. Though. You'll have a uh, Pacific Ocean viewpoint. I can see why you should be in sales. You know, you're selling. By the way, are you, are you following the story? Apparently two Russians left across the Bering Strait. They sailed 300 yeah. miles and they landed on an island I guess an extreme Western Australia, Western Alaska, yeah. uh, seeking uh, refugee status. They don't oh, want to really? get drafted. Yeah. That, I, 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 so they're escaping I, even to Alaska, which I yet to see a photo of these guys. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm becoming so crazy. I mean, I'm going down these conspiracy holes, but that is the story out of Alaska. Two Russians have left across the Bering Sea for freedom in Alaska. And I get the feeling the Bering Sea is kind of, you know, a nasty piece of water. I, I mentioned it's not. A, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's. You know, I don't think it's like staying around uh, the Greek islands in the summer. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not the Serpentine Lake in London. So. I don't see a lot of. Uh, yeah, I've yet to see a cruise being offered around the Bering Sea, but yeah, so that's an interesting development. Okay, with something enjoyable. What are we? I don't have my famous cards. What are we reading and watching? Okay. Gerald, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll do watching first of all. Um, okay. I don't know if we'll put a graphic up for it. And um, it's been out a little while on Netflix. I watched a documentary about the um, German IT and payments company called Wirecard. And this is, oh, yes. This has turned out to be a massive fraud. And it's a really good inside documentary on how the. Um, I want to watch that. Is it, it's a good film then. Yeah, investigative journalists in the Financial Times sort of smelt, smelt a rat. They kind of added up all the internal numbers and they got some uh, serious accountancy types in to look at the numbers. And it was very clear that even from the published documentation, uh, things weren't quite right. Well, the actual horror story unfolded of uh, involving shadow companies that have operated in all parts of the world where um, people have turned up and given... Um, uneducated local people a lump of money and saying, can we use your postal address? I mean, it, it, it doesn't know. It, it's, um, so, it, 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 you know, it's the same old story with fraud. There's always false accounting, and, of course, there's false accounting in a big way. And there's normally a, there's normally a lot of um, uh, borrowing or leverage going on as well. And um, it's a great story because it also is, uh, feeds off um money laundering elements of the dark web and all the rest of it. So um, were they given a lot of, um, since it's, you know, a German tech company, I suspect that they were given a lot of uh, buzz by the media, by politicians. Yeah. Like, a smart and, 
yeah, there's a lot of egg on faces because a lot of German politicians said last we've got a national champion to right. end up against Silicon Valley. Um, they got into the DAX index. Uh, they they displaced Commerce Bank. And so they came from nowhere in 10 or 15 years. And it, it's all based on a basically a complete lie. Um, wow. And I suppose we have to be slightly careful because there are going to be endless court cases going on. But I, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said in the documentary. Um, but, yeah, well worth a watch. So that's the Perfect. One. So that's the up-to-date one. And then I thought I'd um, keep my reputation for finding odd things on the bookshelf to look at. And um, this one sprung to mind, and it's called Rogue Mail. And it's by a gentleman called Jeffrey Household. Kind of an unusual name. It was written in 1939, and this is a Penguin reissue. It's not a 1939 edition. Perfect. This is from the 1970s, um, so I, I bought it a long time ago. But um, it's a very good story. It's a fictional sort of spy story of uh, what happens when a guy attempts to assassinate Hitler and it goes wrong. And uh, this book was written in 1939, you know, it wasn't written after the war. And I see just by chance when I was looking up to check my details on the author and everything, that there's a film coming out about it uh, with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. So oh, perfect. Um, I don't know exactly when it comes out, but it's one of these Rick Roaring, you know, um, goodies versus baddies and spies and everything. And um, if they film it well, it should be a very good story. So there we are, Rogue, Rogue Mail. You can get it as a book. Um, there have been uh, film versions in the past, but I guess we wait to see how Mr. Cumberbatch deals with it. That's me. I love it. Um, yeah, I'm reading here. There was a film in, in 1941, um, but good to see Benjamin getting There's a getting... BBC version in 1976, um, yeah. which is quite a good one, which I think must be what prompted me to buy that book, the, the one I've just been waving around. Um, probably saw it on telly and then thought I'd buy the book. It's good to see Benjamin coming back, still getting work. Yeah, I mean, it's tough down there for some of these guys. <laughs> He's actually a brilliant actor. Yeah, He played Dominic Cummings in one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. yeah. When he punches <laughs> the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. I've got uh, – well, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm – what am I watching? I'm excited for this documentary. Uh, it's going to come out on – October 11th, um, it's called 38 at the Garden. Uh, it is about Andrew Lin, Jeremy Lin, who was a basketball player for the New York Knickerbockers and New York Nets. What's interesting about, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremy Lin. What's interesting about Jeremy, he's uh, Asian-American and yeah. there's obviously well, not a lot of Asian players in the NBA. Um, but he just caught the fascination of New York City to the point where they named it Lin Sanity. And, um, you know, he wrestled with this. He's a smart kid, went to Harvard, pro basketball player. But uh, HBO does some really great work around sports. And um, it crosses not only, obviously, athletics, but also the culture. And um, I don't sure. know, I'm excited for that. And uh, HBO, man, I don't know. They continue to deliver, do good stuff. I mean, yeah, it's one of the greatest media companies out there. Anyways, so I'm excited for that. That comes out October 11th. Um, I, dug into the, uh, I dug into the bookshelf myself. Um, two books to recommend: um, Super Forecasting, the art oh, yeah, science. I know as well, yeah, I know that. Producing, one. yeah, this one's from uh, I think it came out in 2015, 2014. It's a few years old, but um, productions. You know, how do they come about? What's in, my biggest thing is I learned is that basically it comes from people 
who aren't really deemed experts in their field, right? But they're highly technical, highly skilled, and highly observant. You know, they're 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 experts in their skill, but maybe they haven't risen. They don't have the fancy contracts. They're not getting interviewed by the BBC. They're not getting interviewed by the New York Times. But um, I don't know. It's an interesting book, easy to read. And then um, this book here, Magic and Loss. The internet is art. Oh, oh, oh wow! Now, what's all this about? This I know, one is from, I know the author. I don't know her, but I know of the author. So it sounds. Yeah, this is from Virginia Heffernan. Um, she's actually spoke to a Brigadoon event in Utah back in 2017. Right. Um, this talks about the, the first off. She has a PhD in English from Harvard. I mean, her use of the English language is otherworldly. It is absolutely masterful. I think just for like her combination of words. I'm just blown away. I mean, just it, not even the topics, the stuff she writes. She's doing stuff now for Wired and other publications. She has a yeah. Substack, but um, she really just talks about kind of the beauty of the internet. You know how you can connect, make friendships, learn stuff. Um, you know, so much of the reporting of the internet is scary and terrible, and there's a lot of dark stuff happening. But you know, there's a lot of positives, and she talks about it from the magic of the early days, later, late eighties, early nineties. And right. um, it's a good book. So it's, and it's a fun read. It's recommended. I recommend it. It's a good read. And um, yeah, I'm a, I speak, I, I'm a big fan of Virginia. She's a good friend. And uh, like I said, I don't know how many PhDs from Harvard, you know, uh, but I've just literally like, when I read her stuff, I'm just like, how did she figure out? I'm like in awe of the way she uses words. Right. So just yeah. from a reading exp exposition, so it'll be, uh, it'll it's a good be read. well written. It'll be well written. Yeah. So some good things, some good things come out of Harvard every now and then. <laughs> so if we depressed everybody after our little break, and now we're back on our um, two weekly run, I think going forward. Um, I just, you're spot on about the world. This is a very interesting, serious time. Um, Big egos, big players. I mean, when you have the president of the United States saying we're at a situation that is as serious as the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis, it's pretty sobering. I mean, I was very small, so I can't claim to have known the atmosphere then. But it doesn't feel like the Cuban Missile Crisis, does it? Or, or are we missing something here? Well, you know, yeah, getting back to what I said about World War II, and so much of my – it's just amazing how much impact culture Hollywood has on the way it shapes your understanding of the world. You know, yeah. um, famously all the robots perceived in movies out of Hollywood are scary. You know, they're going to take over, kill you. Yeah. Whereas people in Japan use robots every day and they have no problems, but like it's the cultural shift of like how you are taught or learn about the world, yeah. how it shapes your thinking. And uh, that's been really resonant to me. Right. I mean, I can't imagine the pre to me. I'm like in shock. The president said it's Armageddon, Cuban Missile Crisis, and no, nobody's like my mom hasn't called me and said, "Are you ready?" Like, yeah, no, I, there's no like, am yeah. I should I be stocking uh, my pantry? No, you're spot on. I mean, I I would think if the president said something like that, and there's been no, to my knowledge, up until this point, there's been no other readout from the White House. Like, oh, he was joking. It was just you know, it's yeah. just guy talk. I mean, it seems pretty serious, but. <laughs> It should do. Yeah. The atmosphere doesn't feel there. Well, let's let's hope he's wrong, and we we um we do this again in two weeks' time, I suppose. Well, I know. Should we do a, like a daily pod? I mean, is it yeah. is it the Cuban Missile Crisis in the sense of like the drama behind it? Are there I don't know. Or should 
you know, as a normal citizen, does it matter? Should we not know about it? And the bomb hasn't gone off today. I, I live for another day. Well, as I say, we're keeping up the positive vibe of, of the things, <laughs> aren't we? So there we are. We're, our, our great ambition is to make it to tomorrow. So there we are. It does seem a little cavalier. Um, I don't know. I just feel like, are we, are we demanding too much from our politicians? I mean, I don't know. I can't believe the president used that word and there's been no follow-up. I don't know. Be interesting. The White House, actually Biden today is going to do a press event, I think in Maryland or Pennsylvania. And um, the press secretary is going to gaggle on Air Force One. She's going to speak to the reporters there. So I don't know. We'll see what comes out of that. But um, it seems like pretty heavy language for the president to be using. Well, I hope to see you in two weeks' time. I, <laughs> I, I was like, should I be doing my chores this weekend? Does it matter? I mean, should I, you know, does it, if, if the world is ending, I don't know. Should I be reading more books? I don't know. Should I, yeah, should I even watch Wire Card if the, if the world is ending? <laughs> All right. Um, I still haven't heard anything. I don't know if. Gerald, have you heard from RA Italia? No, we haven't heard from Italians. And Our agent is horrible. It's just not working. And Do we need uh, better representation? And we're also we're behind Meghan and Harry because we don't have our own fact-checking department yet. We need one of those. That and, number. That number can be fact-checked. I mean, $18 million for fact-checking? Yeah. I, I, that, I, that's, I think that's all confused in the reporting somewhere. Because if it is that number, I, I may be available to... Uh, yeah. Was it US dollars? I know. What currency was that? Yeah, but I... Yeah, isn't that the whole cost of the package of the podcast? Or I think we can reassure our viewers and listeners that we are running on a, on a, a more modest budget. Uh, um, uh, and no There's absolutely no fact-checking, I can tell you, in this podcast. I've probably said... I know for sure I've said 18 things that are incorrect. So Yeah, I mean, it's, it's buyer beware as far as we're concerned. 100%. Yeah, exactly. Not an investment advice podcast. Exactly. By the way, before we go, can we talk about Kim Kardashian and the SEC? No, I have. Oh yeah, no. no. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I hope the SEC. Actually, I think we would welcome attention from the SEC. It would help our podcast if the SEC. I think find I think us in the it, it would in the um, time honored phrase it would help our profile. Yeah. It may not help our careers, but it would help our profile. <laughs> so if there's any uh, regulatory agency out there that wants to speak to us, we're available. Yeah, we listen. We're available for the RII and uh, any other, you know, three-letter agency. We're basically just available is what we're saying. <laughs> All right, Joe. Have a good weekend. Hopefully I'll see you in two weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao.